face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello and welcome to episode seven of the Policy Dialogue series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national, and international challenges we face. We are recording this on November 5th, 2020, and my name is Evan Papp. I graduated with the class of 2011 to focus on international security and economic policy. And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which focuses on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. Joining me tonight are fellow alumni, Hugo Cantu, Raymond Nevo, Richard Elliott, and Shanice Romero. How is everyone feeling about the election? Good. Like, good, 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 good. I like, good. I like the uh, emphatic response. Um, let me uh, start off, uh, Shanice, can you, can you introduce yourself? Absolutely. So I'm Shawnee Stamiro. Um, I am an alumni of both UMBC and University of Maryland. Um, at University of Maryland, um, I'm on the board and the vice president of the board. And um, I also do community organizing in Prince George's County around police accountability. In addition to that, um, I do policy advocacy in Hill um, liaising um, for, my, for my nine to five. Very cool. And Richard, we're very excited to uh, have you join us from outside the College Park system. Uh, please mm -hmm. introduce yourself. I'm Richard Deshaies Elliott. I am a UMBC alum, class of 2018, with a degree in American Studies, minors in History, Political Science. I'm graduating this semester from Johns Hopkins University with a master's in Political Science, specifically American, uh, American, po uh, American Politics. I'm a candidate for the House of Delegates in District 24. I've written several bills already, and I'm very excited to talk to you all about the past elections along with policy for the future. And uh, Richard, I first met you through Progressive Maryland and some of the organizing you were doing around uh, Medicare for All. So it's, it's a great pleasure having you on. Thank you. And Raymond, to you, uh, please introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Raymond Naveau. I am a School of Public Policy. I got my bachelor's uh, in College Park in this is past May 2020. I am also a board member on the SPP alumni board and I currently work for the National Housing Trust based in Washington DC. I work in um, housing and energy policy as well as uh, racial equity in terms of housing and energy policy. Thank you. And last but not least, Hugo. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Hugo Cantu. I use he, him, his pronouns. Um, so just like Raymond, uh, I was elected to the SPP alumni board as I am an undergrad, or I just finished my undergraduate degree this past May. Um, currently I'm a policy analyst for Councilmember Monique Anderson Walker of District 8 in Prince George's County. So I'm there in the County Council um, looking over legislation, analyzing legislation, um, giving recommendations on what we should do going forward. Uh, and, that, and that's it from 
Silver Spring, Maryland. Spent some time living in Savannah, Georgia, and, and eventually made we made our way back up to Maryland. So great. Well, tonight's uh, conversation is going to be focusing on the election. Uh, we're still waiting for the winner to be determined, but I want to kick it to Richard first. And uh, Richard, what are your thoughts? What are you tracking? Uh, where are we at right now from, from your point of view? Okay. Um, let me start by shameless plug. I run a primary election tracker called PrimaryCast. Uh, the link is primarycast.us. And that's about Democratic primaries, but for the situation in the general Right now, Joe Biden is pulling ahead in Arizona, uh, in Pennsylvania. I think that he's held his ground well in Michigan and Wisconsin. And we're waiting for the last ballots to come in as well in Georgia, where I think Joe is also doing well. Uh, I think that it's fair to say at this point, Joe Biden has won the election based on that in Atlanta, uh, in uh, Metro Philadelphia, in Metro Detroit the mail-in ballots are coming back in huge numbers, specifically for Joe. Trump told his people to vote in person. They did. So the, the vote by mail numbers lean strongly in favor of Joe and the Democrats. Uh, right now, the Democrats have lost several seats in the House, uh, in the House of Representatives. A uh, few people who had won in 2018, for instance, Donna Shalala in the Miami district, uh, Debbie Mercastle Powell in another uh, suburban Florida, Florida district. She also lost. So Democrats right now appear to have lost five, five to eight seats in the House of Representatives and are not going to be taking back the Senate tonight. Uh, it appears that there's going to be two runoff elections in Georgia in this, uh, I think in November, it might be December. Uh, and that race, those races are going to be 50, 60, 70 million dollars on both sides of the aisle to determine who's going to be in charge of the Senate for the, the year 2021 after Biden has been inaugurated. That's an awesome summary. Uh, Shanice, what are you looking at both locally and nationally as well? So, I mean, and also to answer your first question, how I'm feeling around the election, I feel in a general sense, I don't, I don't feel anxiety about um, essentially, like obviously anxiety about the outcome because I'm hoping um, that fascist is not in the office, um, but I don't have that every check, every second checking my phone to, to figure out like the, uh, the vote counts and that sort of thing. So I have a little bit of peace about that because I know that this is going to be a fight. Um, and so I'm, I'm mainly, um, tracking essentially like looking towards like the electoral college in, in that, um, process. Um, because right now it's really on, um, I would say like the, uh, Republican governors who the, um, in, in the nation, most governors are Republican, Maryland, Republican governor. Um, and it's really up to them, um, to appoint electors. Um, and if they're really going to staying true to appointing Biden electors, or are they going to um, have their own set of uh, Trump electors and, you know, and send, and send them? Um, so right now, it is kind of incumbent upon um, states and the, um, upon the people to actually take to their state houses, particularly in, um, in like the swing states and um, the states with a lot of um, um, they have a lot of electors um, to really demand that 
their their governor, their state house does the right thing um, and honors the votes. And Raymond, to you, what are you, uh, how you feel and, and <clears throat> what are you tracking? Uh, I, I think, I mean, this is the best I felt in probably four years today, I think is the best I felt. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of tracking, my, my focus has shifted a lot. Um, today, seeing the numbers in Georgia and really looking at the reality of a runoff for two Senate seats in Georgia, that is where my mind is going now for the future. You know, I, I think Biden is going to win. I think it's going to be an ugly fight. I think in the end, though, he will prevail. And I think this runoff election is really the Democrats' second chance at uh, flipping the Senate. And we really can't take that for granted. And so I, I have full intentions on um, dedicating as much time and money as I can to those runoff elections. Uh, I'm looking possibly at going down there. Election is January 5th. Um, thinking about being there the week leading up to election. Um, I just feel like that Biden being in the White House is great, but we really need the Senate if it's really going to matter that much. And so, you know, that's, that's really what's been on my mind um, today. Well, it's good that you're feeling good. <laughs> I, I think having optimism and hope after being whipped uh, for the last four years by this this menace in the, as a tenant in the White House, um, there is a hope, hopeful optimism in the air. And Hugo, uh, what are you? How are you feeling? And what are you tracking right now? Uh, I am I am feeling better um, than I was feeling the day of uh, Tuesday. I knew that we weren't going to know Tuesday night. Um, I didn't know how far away we were going to be. I was expecting us. Uh, I was I was expecting the electoral college to be a little bit slower. I was expecting I wasn't expecting as many states to be projected as quickly as they were, um, because we knew just how many mail-in ballots were coming in. Uh, what I didn't expect, which has kind of damaged the mood a little bit, was just how many votes Trump got in the popular. I did not expect that. That is something that I don't think most people expected, um, which is a little disheartening. So along with, with, along with the pros of, oh, Biden is most likely going to be the next president, it's also, okay, that's, you're looking at almost 70 million Americans that said, we're okay with what's in the, in the White House, or at the very least, we don't care. Um, and that's definitely disheartening. And that goes to show, I guess I would pose it a little bit of a loss to the Democrats. I mean, something happened, something happened. They lost, they lost the base that seemed to be flipping, which I mean, we did see, we are seeing a flip in Arizona possibly, but I don't understand how so many people voted red. Um, with the last four years that we've seen, and really the last 10 months that we've seen. Um, 
I'm excited to go forward. I'm excited to get past this. Um, I'm worried about the cognitive dissonance that's just that we've seen throughout the last couple of years. And um, definitely going forward, want to dedicate as much time as I can to the midterms coming up. Um, so in two years, because whatever happens this year with the runoffs in Georgia, I mean, that's all well and good. It's, it's the next two years that we have to have for Democrats the Democrats have to have the Senate. I mean, we can't go through what I think what we were going through with Obama for a few of his years where they just didn't have it, they didn't have it on their side. Um, and uh, that's what you're looking at. Um, also tracking the legislation that Trump's been dropping, all of the suits and stuff, they're probably all gonna, you know, fall off the desk of a judge. Like they're probably not really gonna be looked at too hard, but um, he's setting a precedent, which is scary. Yeah, I mean, I still think we're in tremendous danger right now. I mean, with Trump in the White House, he with Barr still as attorney general, with three Supreme Court judges that were with the Bush team in Florida, with Kavanaugh and Roberts and Barrett, uh, who helped suppress the vote and prevent a couple hundred thousand Florida votes from voting for Gore. Um, yeah, I, I think we're still in a very dangerous place. And I think I even heard federal troops potentially being sent into some of these uh, polling places. I'm um, not sure what the outcome of that's going to be. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about this interregnum transition period. And then there's also been a lot of talk about the, the failure of the leadership of the, the Democratic uh, Senate in, with Chuck Schumer and also even with Nancy Pelosi. But Chuck Schumer being involved with over $300 million, I think, that he would, mm -hmm. was in full control of like dumping into senatorial races and what's the return on that investment? And, and is there a shakeup uh, necessary within the Democratic Party? And then the third thing is that, that other point is that we have all these Americans that are living a different reality than I think us here, at least that having this conversation. So. Um, Richard, I guess just in the, in the next two months, as you see it, uh, do you have concerns that Trump is going to try to stay in office? Absolutely. I mean, with, with a six to three Supreme Court majority, there is nothing to say that in the next two weeks, there couldn't be a huge lawsuit to throw away, let's say, all the mail-in ballots that were postmarked on the day of the election uh, early voters who didn't sign their ballots the right way. There's 105 different ways to disqualify voters and you apply them unevenly in a few counties, uh, particularly in states that have Republican secretaries of states and Republican governors. Uh, Maryland be, I mean, uh, Maryland was not a state. I think there's any way you could flip it to Trump, but uh, Maryland, for instance, has a Republican governor, Republican secretary of state. Um, there's obviously Trump has control of the military, like you just said. Uh, there's the potential for federal troops to be going in the vote centers. Um, but I'm less concerned about that, although that is a very uh, stark possibility, than the fear that in 2022, uh, a lot of Democrats simply don't turn out to the polls. You can imagine a 2010 part two, but with significantly less Democratic enthusiasm and significantly more Republican enthusiasm where Republicans potentially retake the House of, uh, the House of Representatives, uh, build an insurmountable lead in the Senate, 
and leave Democrats unable to do anything. And in the 2024 election, that maybe a Tucker Carlson or a Donald Trump Jr. or uh, the Tom senator, Cotton. huh? Tom Cotton. Yeah, or Tom Cotton, or I'm forgetting the other senator that's from, I think, Missouri. Oh, Josh Hawley. That's who I'm thinking of. Or Josh Hawley, uh, a, a far-right conservative that at least has an understanding of working-class issues and perhaps would be able to frame, this is a tax cut for working-class people and small businesses because Democrats don't want working-class people to get tax cuts. I'm not saying that that's, that's an argument that I think is true, but it was shown this election that Trump actually had a relatively strong inroads into the working class, black and Latino communities. Biden potentially could have flipped Texas, could have won Georgia and, and North Carolina with a strong majority, potentially could have flipped Florida. But his campaign was horrific in Latino outreach. I uh, didn't really offer any specific policies. I think pandered to the Latino community and simply offered immigration pandered to the black community and simply offered criminal justice reform without, I think, a proper apology or acknowledgement of the 1994 crime bill. And as was seen in the election results, uh, basically every minority group's vote share for Trump increased, although I think a major factor therein is that there was decreased support for the Democratic Party across the board by the working poor, people making, let's say, 10000 to $40,000 a year. I think a lot of those people are just outright exiting voting or at least voting for president. And it does not bode well for the Democratic Party's future if they cannot win Latino voters at a strong clip or even win black voters at a particularly strong clip. Well, I wanna open it up to anyone who wants to jump in and, and comment on what Richard is saying. I, I'm always, puzzled at how bad the democratic leadership is in selling policies. It seems, and I, I am aware that they also represent Wall Street and Wall Street mm -hmm. has tentacles in both parties. And that's part of the reason why they're constantly pulling their punches, but it seems like low hanging fruit, but just tossing it out there. Yeah, what are, what are some thoughts on that? On the, the fact that Trump actually uh, gained with um, certain minority groups. I think it was a good point. I think it's a perfect point. Um, I think regarding the Latino and, and African-American community, you do see almost a sense of the Democrats saying, well, they're going to come to us anyway, right? Um, mm -hmm. Let's go out there and make sure they register to vote because once they're registered to vote, you know they're going to come to us. Um, and I don't think it's particularly Trump or Trump's campaign or the GOP saying, look at all these things we're going to do for you because I mean, let's face it, the GOP doesn't want someone that looks like me um, by the rhetoric. But with the Democrats saying, hey, we are just going to get you to vote um, and we're going to throw these two big words at you, you know, immigration and, and the phrase criminal justice reform. Um, it, it's, I mean, I don't, I don't know how else you could have seen that going. Um, and then the GOP going forward with the 2016 tax cuts, we're gonna see taxes increase from 2021 or around 2024, around that time period. And we'll guess who's gonna be holding office at that point, right? So mm -hmm. how else do you spin that but saying, oh, look, you see what happened? The Democrats are raising your taxes just like we said was gonna happen. 
um, which is a policy in and out of itself and a, and a, a strategy, I guess I could say. Um, but, you know. But Biden did say only over 400,000 people making more than $400,000. Um, yeah. on, his, on his tax plan, exactly, right, on his tax plan. But then we're looking at the tax um, on President Trump's uh, tax deferment, I think that's what it was, the executive order in August, which essentially deferred a lot of these tax payments for individuals making, I don't remember, but under 40000 or under, under a set amount of money, I don't know, like 10000 or something. Um, and that way that tax money was being kept on the paychecks. The payroll tax exemption. Yes, exactly. Yeah, for, right. and for then, Social Security that they're going to owe, actually. Uh, and then they're going to have to owe later, and guess who might be in office at that point, right? Mm -hmm. So. And, and uh, oh, Shanice, were you about to talk? I don't want to cut you off. Um, I was just kind of uh, just going to comment mm -hmm. on, briefly, on the 400 like the um the essentially like the marginal tax rate in in what um joe biden had promised and i think with that even just like just um like social media discourse um a lot of people feel that they are one lucky break or you know uh, one in lottery or uh, one promotion away from you know making four hundred thousand dollars or mm -hmm. you know, achieving that American dream. Um, so they're like, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want, um, you know, I, I would like a tax cut. I don't want anybody, um, you know, taking more money from me um, because eventually I'll be rich too. So that means that they're going to tax me more when in actuality, everybody, I, I would say the majority of people in America are, are close to being um, below the poverty line than they are to being a billionaire. Um, and it's, it's kind of that class analysis, um, in, in where it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter like what race you are. Um, rich people are always going to vote for their, um, their personal best interest. Um, and people who aspire to be rich are also going to vote against their personal best interest, um, in favor of things like, um, you know, going against like taxing the rich or taxing people who you know make over four hundred thousand dollars yeah it's false consciousness oh sorry richard please yeah my i was going to respond to uh the one of the questions you posed earlier about the failures of democratic leadership uh there's already been reports that the blue dog caucus is considering a challenge to nancy pelosi uh, if anybody read like the twitter thread earlier about the phone call a moderate Virginia Democrat, Abigail Spanberger, was yelling, saying that to fund the police almost cost her her race, uh, that the people need to stop talking about socialism, uh, pretending that the reason the Democrats lost is because they were too bold, when I think that it would be very fair to characterize the 2020 general as the year without a campaign. It was pretty much uh, just you run your ticket. Uh, there was no real plan. Him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, from from Joe or really uh, a compelling narrative for down ballot Democrats. If, for instance, there'd been in 1994, Republicans ran with Newt Gingrich's contract with America. Democrats easily could have put together some bullshit marketing shtick of here's our contract for you all, COVID recovery, uh, health care for everybody, and we're going to raise wages and give another stimulus 
that's not even very ambitious, but you, you understand that there would be a cohesive reason for people to vote the Democratic ticket rather than just supporting Joe or just supporting the congressional candidate. Uh, and that might have helped out, for instance, Akara Eastman, who narrowly lost in Nebraska's second district, even though Biden won it. Uh, but if the blue dog Democrats are considering primarying Pelosi out of the speaker's race with uh, Hakeem Jeffries was the noted person. He's a Steny Hoyer uh, study, understudy, one could say. And that could be Hakeem Jeffries is able to beat Nancy Pelosi with a combination of the Black Caucus, the Progressional Caucus, uh, the Progressive Caucus, uh, and the Blue Dog Democrats. If he's able to do that, that could yield, that could result in different strategic uh, methods. I think that Chuck Schumer should be quite in danger. He wasted $315 million on eight races that were all lost. Amy McGrath, being the most embarrassing of them, did not break 40%. And he pushed and, her over Booker as well, I believe. Yeah, pushed her over Booker for yeah. her to not contest and to destroy black political infrastructure in Kentucky. Uh, and what's the result of these races when at this scale, they might as well have sent every American a mask. So I think that for Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, Sherry Bustos, who is the chair of the D-Trip, uh, I do not believe she will be running for re-election to that position. Uh, Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen from Montgomery County, he's currently the chair of the Democratic Senate uh, Congressional Campaign. And I would imagine that also he is not going to be back in that position. And my, my, uh, to give my rating on this election for the Democratic Party, running against a, a neo-Nazi who is uh, awful on all economic policy, has mishandled a pandemic and a recession, caused the deaths of over 200,000 people within the country. And all of this has happened during election cycle and they won by a nail biter in the electoral college says that the democratic party to a lot of american voters does not stand for anything beyond we're not donald trump and that is not a sufficient message and if there's not significant restructuring and significant advancement within the party they're going to lose the white house in 2024 probably not by a close margin either raymond you got something optimistic to say man um, <clears throat> I mean, I do feel like there was one clear Democrat who won this election cycle, who wasn't running for office, but her name is Stacey Abrams. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, if, if people are really wanting to look at how racism are, are won, um, and how you challenge an entire infrastructure, I think that they will pay very close attention to what happened in Georgia. Even if in the very end, Biden doesn't pull it, the fact that it's three days later and you know, Georgia's still not in, in the Trump category says so much. And that's been the trajectory um, you know, since, since 2016. Um, you know, I, I have my like my relationship with the Democratic Party is is a roller coaster um, that that I'm you know I'm I'm not going to get off of it but um, I I figure out you know how to compartmentalize um, my feelings around it I I do think 
Pelosi will be primaried. Um, I, 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 I don't know how, you know, how, how I will feel about, um, you know, either side supporting her or supporting whoever, you know, primaries her. Um, but, you know, there's no disagreement that there are some major missteps early on in, in this campaign cycle um, for Democrats. I think, you know, going to the Senate, Amy McGrath, I, I, I do think she was a, the, a terrible candidate um, for Kentucky. I think MJ Hager was a terrible candidate for John Cornyn. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, it's to this day so almost infuriating that if they were gonna try to challenge John Cornyn that they didn't put Beto O'Rourke against him. Instead, they let him run for president and then do not very much. Um, and, and I think, you know, going back to the platform, you know, Richard's right. I think we, we failed on that level and, um, and, and we regularly fail on that level. And, you know, people will look at our platform and say, you know, it's the most progressive platform the Democratic Party has ever had. And in some regards, that is true. There are a lot of mentions in the platform and in Joe Biden's plan, you know, on his website that just wouldn't have been heard of for eight years ago. Um, but I, I think um, we, uh, we do, we pull our punches and we are uh, too, too afraid to, um, you know, really play, play to people's fears, which is what Republicans do all the time. And that's really the motivation that people, you know, take to vote. Um, and, and, and just general marketing, I think, you know, it's, mm -hmm. we, we really need to do um, not even social searching, we need to do some like research and education and like reevaluation um, and, you know, go back to school and, and learn. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I am uh, probably not the most angry Democrat on this screen right now. <laughs> that's <laughs> angry frustrated democrat is probably not me on the screen if that is helpful at all for optimism <laughs> add, yeah, please. yeah just one more piece of hope and um optimism is that the squad is getting bigger um so with the addition of cory bush and jamal bowman um and as you all know like uh cory bush comes from um missouri ferguson missouri um and we know with like you know the tragic death and uh the tragic killing of michael brown um and just just the kind of just like the structural issues that the establishment has created in ferguson um it's just exciting to see um some new movers and shakers um on the hill um in addition to that uh, Mark Pokin, I don't, I don't know if this is joy or not, but Mark Pokin, um, um, he sat down as one of the co-chairs of the Progressive Caucus. Um, and kind of the, like, the personal statement behind that is that it's easier to kind of, like, tear down the uh, mm -hmm. caucus if you have dual leadership. Um, and so with that, they're hoping to refocus and strengthen the um, Progressive Caucus, um, which is great because... I'll be like in, in my personal critique, the Progressive Caucus sometimes doesn't go 
hard enough on issues that impact people of color. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit optimistic about that. Um, if that's like the only array of, um, of hope coming out of this election. Yeah, if I was advising the campaign, it seems like very obvious to me what this country needs when you have crumbling infrastructure everywhere, you have jobless, you have, people, you have the highest unemployment numbers, and now there's the official, but the unofficial is much higher for those underemployed, no longer on mm -hmm. unemployment benefits. I mean, we're at, we're over like 20% right now. And we needed, the Democrats have not ran a jobs program, I think, since the 1960s. And like the, mm -hmm. the best jobs program in the history of the world was the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Works Progress Administration, the Public Works uh, Administration that was able to build all this infrastructure, and then the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which used funding through Federal Reserve and Treasury mechanisms to be able to allocate to the states to then build these large uh, infrastructure programs. And it seems like right away you could generate 30 million jobs, union wage, uh, and rebuild the infrastructure. And then you'll start bringing people in that maybe were on the outside before. And, and the, it'd be harder to divide people up when, with the mass traction economic issues. Making sure everyone has healthcare, making sure everyone has housing, making sure that social security is preserved, you know, because obviously uh, Trump is trying to cut that as well. It, it's like, as a politician, you're supposed to deliver the goods and why are you up there as a politician and you're not trying to deliver the goods? Uh, you know, at least Trump says it and he ran to you know, the left of Clinton on a lot of economic issues, which is absolutely insane, even though he's and, and there is such a false consciousness, obviously, with these people, blue collar, you know, people losing their place in society. And so they gravitate to this demagogue who scapegoats the most uh, marginalized people in, in the country. But then to, he, he was the most anti-union person. He screwed over like every single type of worker. He's never worked out an actual day in his life. And yet the false consciousness, somehow these people think that Trump, you know, actually cares about them, so. Well, Evan, if, if you want, I think maybe one of the more interesting breakdowns that I hadn't provided yet was that progressivism did not lose at the ballot. The state of Florida approved a $15 minimum wage by about 60%, while Joe Biden got about 48% of the vote. Uh, marijuana was legalized re recreationally and medicinally in the state of South Dakota, a deep red state. Uh, marijuana was legalized in New Jersey. I think it was legalized in another state besides that. And then at the same time, the quote unquote liberal state of California did not enact statewide rent control and it did not extend protections for gig workers. So this goes to show that the Democratic Party is not seen as the vehicle to these policies. Otherwise, the votes would correspond much stronger. This does, uh, I think that, I, I think I, I posted about this earlier on my page uh, from the, Gra the Gravel Institute, the Gravel Institute, that a party that was solely dedicated to universal healthcare, union jobs, and fighting the pandemic, would they win most of the states in the country? The Democratic Party was not seen as that by a lot of the voters. And I think that is mainly due to, in part, rather than the Democratic Party's elected officials solely, but sort of the bureaucracy and the cultural aspects of the party, primarily MSNBC talking heads and DC area consultants, 
there is so much money to be made in politics by selling commercials that people refuse to invest in actual grassroots door-to-door -door efforts. Democrats did not really knock any doors in the general election. The Biden campaign did not really knock any doors. The Trump campaign was knocking like a million doors a week, registering voters. So if it continues in this way where the people who profit from the party, the DC area consultants, the MSNBC talking heads, uh, the people like the Lincoln Project who supposedly were going to help flip Trump, uh, flip Republicans to Clinton or to Biden, uh, but Trump actually got 3% more Republican voters. The Lincoln Project raised $67 million. Imagine what one could do with $67 million organizing in the black community from Baltimore, Maryland to Houston, Texas. But there's not really any money to make off of that in, uh, in client charge. And this is a problem that is going to persist as long as the DTRIP and the DSCC and the other organs of the party operate in the manner that they do of profiteering rather than offering political solutions. And it's not even as late back as the 60s, Democrats had an employment program. Tip O'Neill, not really known as a progressive Democrat, he supported full employment. And that was during the Reagan FDR era. FDR New Dealer type yep. guy. Yep. So, but I've never heard Nancy Pelosi ever say the term full employment or jobs program. Oh, it's so inflationary. <laughs> I'm going to let my, my $400 million with my husband, Paul Pelosi, are, is going to get a little uh, less valuable. Right. Um, Hugo, to you, man. Uh, you, what are you thinking? Uh, yeah, I mean, to quote, uh, was it Aaron Sorkin? Aaron Sorkin's show? Um, what was it? It was like, if liberals are so smart, why do they lose so GD much, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing that all the time, right? We, we think that the far left have really good ideas, and they do have great ideas, Medicare for all, Green New Deals, all of these things, but they're just not doing what they can be doing, um, as Richard's saying. I mean, not going into these communities, not talking to Latinos as, uh, as, if, as if they're just, just, they're just votes that, that are coming to them already. Um, not not kind of going out there and saying the things that they need to be saying instead of just saying, again, what Richard's saying, oh, well, we're not him, right? We're not Trump. We, we're, we're, we're not them, so come to us, vote for us, we're better. Um, but I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't understand the conservatism from the Democrats the way, because they can really be changing things um, at different levels than they are doing, right? I mean, and again, the squad, the squad's getting bigger. I mean, we, we have our first um, open transgender uh, uh, representative in the, in the country. I think someone's uh, also non-binary. I mean, these are big changes in a world, in a country that has been for the most part, not open to things like this. And then the liberals on the left are saying, okay, again, we're not, we're not red, right? So come to us anyway, but there's, there's problems that they're not, they're not addressing. I mean, even in Maryland, even in the state of Maryland, we had issues with um, Governor Larry Hogan and what he did with money not being allocated to Baltimore and Baltimore City, right? So we're having even problems here and 
just across the board, it just seems to be something that, that the liberals tend to be powerless on some of these things. Um, the Democrats seem to be powerless. Mm-hmm. I mean, even with a majority House and a majority Senate in the um, in Maryland State Legislature, they didn't call a special session for, yep. for I mean, Richard knows, Richard knows, I mean, they didn't call for a special it's session. Been it's been four months and, now. It's been over four months. Some days. Yeah. Um, and just from my small time in the house and, and some of the, some of the people that I know in the house, um, it's, it's, it's absolutely baffling the amount of influence, right. That leadership has in terms of calling special, special session, but not wanting to actually do it, but say, Hey, we're here for you, which governor Hogan did a very, very good job with the COVID pan COVID response. Personally, I think, I think he did, as good of a job as he could have given the fact that he didn't want to try any harder, right? He was like, this is kind of how far I'm going to go. And, you know, almost um, everyone else is just going to have to deal with this incrementally. Um, but I mean, the Democrats had the power in the, in the state house and they had the power in the Senate, but they didn't want to come back. So I don't, I don't know how much further, how much longer people are going to say, yeah, we're super, super, you know, try hard, die hard with the Dems. If their only thing is, okay, well, we're not them. I mean, really. (laughs) So looking ahead in the coming days and weeks, where do you see opportunities to engage? I think in this interregnum period, as we make, want to make sure that all the votes are counted, number one, and that the will of the electorate is actually reflected on who's uh, going to be sworn in on January 20th. So I, I guess, what are you following? What types of groups are you looking at and working with? And then, um, and then the, the final question after that, I'm going to want to just discuss a little bit about how we can help influence public policy uh, going into 2021. So is, is anybody um, working with groups right now to make sure the votes are counted or following specific groups? Yeah, please. Um, so I'll just I'll just say one of um, one of the groups, uh, the Poor People's Campaign, um, they have already um, you know put in place. I think yesterday was their rally in Annapolis specifically, um, a ra- like to demand um, Governor Hogan count the votes. Um, and so Poor People's Campaign, like they're national and they have like, you know, state chapters. Um, but I think they're one of the, I mean, they're a huge power player um, down in, um, in uh, down on the hill. Um, and I think they'll be pretty integral in mobilizing people um, to press their governors to count the votes um, and, you know, and to do, to do right by the American people. Anyone else? I know there's a ton of groups right now uh, tracking things. Is it, are there any organizations that uh, folks are following? I'll I'll be honest. There, in terms of like vote count, um, I I have not been, um, and I, I guess that's largely just due to like my own work and and really uh, being super engaged with. The people that are still suffering because of COVID and still fighting to keep people in their homes and keeping their electricity on um, in both Maryland and in Pennsylvania for the coalitions that I lead. I know that there are 
uh, coalition members that I work with who are doing um, vote count um, work, be, you know, they were already doing um, get out the vote and voter registration uh, work, and now they are they're shifting their focus. Um, and you know, they're more grassroots organizations. So I I hear about it, but you know, I I myself specifically am not uh, involved. Yeah, Richard. Uh... Are you tracking anyone or, or working on uh, with any of these groups right now? I know I the last thing I was doing was manning the polls for a school board candidate in Prince George's Shayla Adam Stafford. Uh, she won two to one uh, with the endorsements of the Black Lives Matter pack and schools, not jails, along with the teachers union and several members of the school board. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I can oh I can turn my camera on, but. I, is that better? Yeah. yeah, I my phone in the charger was down to one percent. <laughs> okay, that's how I was wondering. Cool. But I is it plugged me, in now? Yeah, it's plugged in now. Okay. But okay, this cool. let me transition to your other question of what yeah. people do for going into twenty twenty one. Like I said before, I think the twenty twenty two election is going to have extremely low turnout among I call them non ideological Democrats. This means that the progressive base, the black base, the young base will be expanded considerably in the primary election. So in the next year to two years, there's gonna be a sizable number of mayor's races, city council, and then obviously in 2022, governor, comptroller, House of Delegates, state senate. Uh, there's already people running for office, myself in District 24, Saka Bali in District uh, 15, uh, Tim Adams running for comptroller of the state of Maryland, uh, Greenbelt Mayor Colin Byrd. And beyond simply helping people get elected, learning how to write policy, which I can help anybody to do if they message me or they reach out. If you can write policy and give it to people, you can help them to better understand what you're trying to do, I think, than just a conversation. Uh, and then there's plenty of organizing that can be done outside of just candidates. Uh, my big ambition for 2022 will be to have a ballot question to legalize marijuana. If we've had them to legalize sports betting in 2020, I think a 2022 ballot question about legalizing marijuana will guarantee that a Democratic gubernatorial nominee is successful, even if it's Ben Jealous again. So that's something that could be done. That's even if you dislike all politicians, you can get ballot questions on the ballot and they historically tend to pass, even if they are progressive, because voters are progressive for the most part, even Republicans on certain issues but they do not view the Democratic Party as a vehicle to those aims. Who, who are you, um, who are, are you running against, Richard, in your district? I don't give my opponents name rec that I don't like, but Eric Barron is one of the delegates in the district, and I believe he'll be running for state senate in that district. And I, if things go proper, I would like to be on his slate along with another candidate. Great. That's great. Myself, I've uh, been working a lot with this Labor Radio Podcast Network and really trying to lift up the voice of labor. I, there's this huge vacuum of organized labor being able to get its message out. The unions, the bureaucracies are fall into the same trap as a lot of the people in the Democratic Party where they're willing to pay consultants the big fees and not, they don't want to build up their own organic media to be able to really communicate with their members and, and try to 
expand the organized labor and, and union trade union movement in this country. So very excited for that. That's, that's my little plug and can be pushing that going in 2021. Um, so what about the, the rest of you? What are, what are you looking at? What, what are some of the things that uh, energize you going into the new year that you're going to be pushing? Uh, I think, I think, I think one of the main things that Democrats have to do, or just, I guess, as a country, we really have to do is focus on the 14, 15, 16 year olds of, of that have seen the last four years, because I think that group of that group of potential voters, um, are getting essentially a surface I mean, all of education in the United States has been just the surface of, oh, this is kind of what has happened. Um, and there's got to be a decolonization of the education system that we do have in this country. And that's from top to bottom, all the way through across the board. And having the young voters and young individuals, because now they're no longer just, um, they're, they're no longer just, uh, oh yeah, they're, they're there, but they're not really going to vote. So we don't, we don't cater that to them. We don't pander to them. We don't care because, well, well, they're not voting, but then they become 18 and then they can go and join the army if they want. But maybe the civics class that they took in high school really didn't do a good job. And, and now they're just getting all this media coverage from a hundred miles an hour from their parents and then from their friends and, and then who knows what's selling them what. I think the main thing that's gotta happen is a serious reform of education on what's actually happening in their area, in their local government. Um, and if that means lowering the voting age to 16 for local elections like Tacoma Park, Maryland did, then that's something that you probably have to do because they, it's one of those things where if, if I'm powerless to a degree, why do I care? And that's, and they only get to that, they only get to that thought if they do in fact care, right? I mean, that's, that's a chicken and the egg situation. They, they're powerless because they've noticed that they can't do anything. So then now they don't care or they not care because then they feel powerless. I mean, there's something that something's got to be done. Movements have to be done in getting young folks in politics and in policy and understanding policy, like Richard was saying, was actually understanding understanding some of the things that will be affecting them, even at, even if it's just at the county level, even if the counties, every county in, in Maryland or the United States decides to vote to lower their voting age from 18 to 17, right, 17 to 16, something like that, then then you're actually going to get the idea of okay, maybe this maybe we'll have a better understanding of where this country is going or where where it can potentially go instead of just waiting till, till they're 18 with the bare minimum civics class that they took that they were required to take that doesn't really dive into a lot of the deeper issues that America does have that now has been plastered across the country for the last 10 months because everything's been exacerbated because of COVID and there was nothing we could have there's nothing we we could do for two three months so then we had to sit there and watch people be shot on TV and and then you go to New York City and people are being I mean, the horrendous videos of people being have to be put in these ice trucks because they're passing from COVID. I mean, all of these things that are happening across the country are 
being exacerbated. And then now you have young folks listening to all of it. I mean, they're seeing all of it. I mean, 95% of, Amer of Americans, I think, have cell phones in this country. Uh, so, so what, you, you, you ignore them until they're 18, right? I mean, that's, that's the message I'm getting. That's, that's the message I got, you know, growing up in this country, being a, being a Latino, being well, both my parents are immigrants. Both my parents have degrees from their countries, but then they get, they get here, they, they, you know, my dad works in IT, he's involved with things that are happening, but there's some things that my family did not understand because we did not grow up here. My parents did not grow up here. There's things that we don't understand about the elections, about how things run and how the county goes. I mean, I work in the county government. I did not know how much uh, zoning and development and real estate development is done and just how much that can even influence gentrification. Mm -hmm. You think of gentrification as, oh, it's a big problem. Millionaires have money and they go and buy up a bunch of stuff and they build things and then people have to move out. No, it's, it's planned. It's real estate developers come with plans to the local officials and say, hey, we want to build this. And local officials say, yep, looks good to me. But we don't care about anything that happens after. We don't care about the flooding. We don't care about gentrification. We don't care about people moving out. We don't, we don't care about the tax base going up or down. We just want as much revenue as we can. And you have the 14, 15, 16 year olds all looking around like, oh, I remember when there was something here and now it's a humongous building and, and, you, and you're leaving them out of the, you're leaving them out. It is all about the youth. I mean, everything that we're doing is future oriented. And uh, Raymond, I know you focus a lot on housing policy. I'm, I'm sure that's gonna be something you'd be looking at into 2021. What else are you, uh, what are you, else are you tracking and, and kind of pushing? And then I'm gonna to go to Shanice to take us home, so. Um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, looking at um, housing development, although my, my work itself is uh, focused on like retrofitting already existing housing and, and taking care of people who are in housing and keeping it affordable and keeping it healthy um, and, you know, and also providing opportunity for those people. So, you know, it's not enough just to give someone a place to live. Like you have to give them infrastructure, you know, public transit, ensuring that there's a grocery store, like not a Whole Foods, but like a grocery store. Um, and, uh, you know, in tying in education and, and looking at providing, you know, internet is part of the infrastructure and, you know, as a utility, all, all of these things. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll be looking at that, you know, through, through work. Um, and, uh, you know, on, on a personal level, you know, I, um, I, I think more and more about running for office myself all the time. And so I think that's going to be, um, a, you know, a, a serious um, in, internal inquiry um, and, and something that I will figure out for myself uh, in, in 2021 also. Do it. That's all I can say. There's only one way to learn. And, and you know, obviously you speak to Richard and people like him who, who've been doing it 
in, in that those circles for a very long time. Um, so Shanice, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think the midterm election um, will be very, very interesting. Um, but even so, even before that, right? So in Prince George's County specifically, um, we have literally had a history of police brutality um, and over-policing in black and brown communities. And even, um, not even most recently, but just um, notably like DeMonte Ward-Blake um, and how he was paralyzed um, from, like, from the waist down, like essentially, um, and this was like after he was handcuffed um, by, by a um, Georgia's County police, um, police officer. And there has been, you know, the Department of Justice has been in um, Prince George's County invest, um, investigating. They did it in 2004, um, and that actually resulted in a consent decree um, against excessive use of force because they were um, using police dogs, um, uh, well, obviously excessively, but just unnecessarily completely. Um, and, and then in 2017, the Department of Justice um, came back and it's um, still ongoing. There's also been um, the Black and the Latino um, police um, officers unions have um, collectively sued the Prince George's County Police Department. And that has kind of culminated um, within, you know, within the national deaths um, as well, has just culminated in just like the refrain of we need police, um, we need police accountability because they keep giving us incrementalism. Um, and that obviously is not working. Um, so right now, uh, Prince George's County um, delegation, um, there is a, uh, there's a work group right now uh, focusing on police accountability. So we will see if anything actually substantial comes out of that and if those recommendations um, are actually implemented. Because um, actually, I'll just stop there. Let's see if well, they'll be implemented. Um, on top of that, really interested, um, like the, uh, the governor's race to see who steps in that. Um, and I would just say like in 2018 um, with Ben Jealous, like Maryland essentially saw like the abandonment of Ben Jealous um like the, those so-called democrats in montgomery county ex exactly i'm not not even just uh montgomery county not even montgomery county um, sure. prince george's county as well um and that was one of the what one of the campaigns that i was um working on the um the non-paid side um for not coordinating with the direct campaign um and just to see um, like just signs would leave him off and instead it would just say vote for all Democrats. Um, just, it was just systemic um, to see them just kind of separate themselves from Vangelis. And obviously we got <laughs> another four years of Hogan. Um, and so it should, should be very interesting to see who steps into that race. Um, and I'll also, I'm, I'm curious if, um, if our Prince George's County, um, County Executive will uh, <laughs> Go, Angela, go. No, no ceiling is too high. <laughs> Do whatever you want. We'll see if she steps in and, um, you know, puts her hand, hat in that ring. Um, but I'm also um, hopeful that the, the, the moment that we're in and the progressive wins that we had nationally will disrupt the status quo. And in that, 
um, kind of to what Hugo was saying, like, I want to see Gen Z and millennials just completely just disrupt the um, status quo to get into the season, make actual progressive change, um, to get on boards, um, and even just, you know, not um, outside of that, but just like just organize um, and mobilize some communities and, and make policy wins and really be a force to reckon with in the state of Maryland. Um, much there's a um, you know like a, a movement now but I wanted to see that like 10 times um, to where they really can't ignore what we have to say um, and then also just speaking in terms of hope um, also I mean like in Maryland Maryland doesn't have open primaries um, I'd also like to see that um, um, to see like Maryland have an open primary and I think just just thinking nationally um, the Democratic Party is not working for us um, the Democratic Party is the status quo. We saw that um, when Joe Biden, um, he tweeted, I think it's today or yesterday, that, you know, after the, um, after um, I win the election, you know, we're going to put aside all this harsh campaign rhetoric. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Like, are we going to go back to handholding? Um, are we going to go back to centrist policies that are not working for um, the millions of, of Americans who um, are not rich? So. I would say I just even just thinking like just um, like in imagining the world that I want to see, I would like to see some, an alternative, like a viable alternative on the national level um, to the Democratic Party, um, because it's 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 really like a lot of voters stayed home because Joe Biden is not exciting. His his campaign promises and his platform, his track record just weren't exciting. So I'm going to end with that. <laughs> Thank you very much. And Richard, did you have any last thoughts or are you? Um, I guess I'll give a final one and it's mostly uh, as, a, as a FU to County Executive Alsa Brooks. Uh, County Executive Alsa Brooks is a rumored candidate for governor and on Tuesday she lost the school board race uh, two to one when it was the only race she was considering in her in the entire jurisdiction, meaning that I think it's going to be difficult for County Executive also Brooks to build a true down ballot operation and compete in all corners of the state. The 2022 election is going to be very interesting because I don't think there's going to be a natural progressive candidate. And I'm going to try and move as much progressive sway towards the Central Committee members and towards the Comptroller's race with the intention of electing a progressive chair for the Maryland Democratic Party along with a progressive first vice chair and if i can make it known to the world who i support i would like senator jill p carter to be the, the party chair and greenbelt mayor colin burr to be the first vice chair well on that i think uh we're gonna end this program and uh thank you all so much for your time and i really appreciate you and all the work that you're doing and look forward to continuing to struggle with you all going into 2021